0: And here's something fascinating that I learned not too long ago that totally blew my mind. And it's all about why it's so traumatic. Why is the deception so traumatic or why is it so devastating when we, when we find out that they're looking at something because people always go, Oh, well, it's not like he's cheating on you, but yet to our brains, to our hearts, it's exactly the same. And I was like, How is that? You know, are we just overreacting? And it all comes back to attachment theory. So when there's a rupture or a breakage, a deception in that relationship with your primary attachment figure, which is your spouse, your brain actually registers that threat, like that break, that rupture as a primal survival threat. So that's why our whole nervous system goes crazy and we have all these physical symptoms just from the knowledge that our guys are looking at pornography.
1: When life as you know it is flipped upside down, we struggle to make sense of it all. Why would a good God allow this to happen? Hi, I'm Sherry Pilkington, your host of Finding God in Our Pain. In early 2018, the deepest questions of my life erupted when I unexpectedly lost my husband of 32 years. Since then, I've searched the heart of God for what He has to say about pain and suffering. In this podcast, we'll discover how God enters into our pain, shepherds us through our darkest valley, and out into the green pastures once again. I'll bring you firsthand stories from women who will allow us into their authentic struggle, along with professional advice from experts, counselors, and others who can speak to what it looks like to navigate pain. Join me as we discover God's answers to the deepest cries of our shattered heart. There is a whole lot of goodness in my conversation with Rosie McKinney. And Goodness is such an understatement. If there's a lack of intimacy in your marriage, a disconnect that you can't quite put your finger on, please listen to this entire conversation. If your husband struggles with a porn addiction and you're in need of some answers, clarity, hope, and healing, you must listen to this whole conversation. And if you're a woman who struggles with porn, please listen to this whole conversation. Rosie is the founder of Fight for Love Ministries, where she equips and educates women with a baseline of information about the dangers of porn, showing them the way out of addiction because her heart is that every marriage, every woman has a fighting chance. She's written a book on this type of topic titled Fight for Love, and it is an amazing resource as well as her website. The links are in the show notes, but if show notes are a mystery to you, just remember rosiemckinney.com. If you go to her website, you'll find everything you need to know about her ministry, the book, and some wonderful resources. Rosie and I talk mostly about husbands who are struggling with an addiction to porn, but we also talk about the fastest growing user group, Women one-third of porn users are female and it is rapidly increasing. We talked to them in this conversation and there is a focused portion of Rosie's book for women who themselves are struggling with a porn addiction. Rosie's passion for bringing this sensitive topic to the surface and normalizing an aggressive stance against pornography in marriage was born out of her own personal journey because of her husband, Mark's porn addiction. Mark and Rosie now live a porn-free marriage. Mark is a certified sexual addiction therapist. Therapist and Rosie gives hope and healing to other women who find themselves in the same situation she experienced. Loneliness, thinking you're the only one, fear about speaking up, because what are people going to think about you or think about your husband? Confusion and misinformation about how you should act, what you should say, specifically for Christian women. And just plain bad advice. Rosie has created a clear, empowering path of freedom for women to initiate recovery and stay the course. Some of the topics we covered, why women blame themselves, misconceptions about porn use, the difference between how men and women interact with porn, this power position that women have to initiate recovery, and the fact that a wife is not simply fighting her husband's preferences or even another person. Rosie shows us how the battle is an altered chemical state in the brain. As you heard in the opening clip, Rosie explains why it's still traumatic for a woman and the relationship, even if she does not, or if her husband does not reveal his addiction, even though the wife may not have concrete evidence or, or even an explanation of the disconnect of intimacy, there is still consequences. So that whole way of thinking by a husband, I'm not going to tell my wife because I want to protect her. There's still an emotional, mental and physical consequence to that way of thinking. Something else that was interesting to me, Rosie explained that pornography itself is not the reason for divorce. And when she explained her findings, it made complete sense how the attitudes and behaviors that surround porn use is typically the ultimate destruction of the marriage. Rosie's message is going to set you free because she knows that you don't have to try harder. You need to educate yourself on what you're dealing with and which strategy will actually work fight for love because it's worth it. And a porn-free marriage, a porn-free life is possible. Rosie, what a pleasure it is to have you here on my show. I'm excited to bring clarity and answers about the truth behind porn, both because it's important that we know what we're dealing with and also the biblical worldview, because there's a lot of confusion around the messages that we're getting as women. I want wives to be able to identify this mind and marriage wrecker through what you share in your book. So welcome, Rosie. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you for having me, Sherry. I'm really excited about this conversation today. Your
1: book, Fight for Love, How to Take Your Marriage Back from Porn. And as a side note, you have a whole chapter where you reach out to women who struggle with porn. So if we have time, we'll cover that as well. In your book, you are very direct and truthful. And I found that refreshing from a Christian perspective because churches aren't really having this conversation. You cover all the ways porn impacts lives mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And something that stuck with me in your first chapter And it solidified this conversation for me is a quote and some statistics, all of which you cited. The quote was by Josh McDowell, a well-known apologist, Christian apologist. And and he said, pornography is the greatest threat to the cause of Christ in the history of the world. That's got weight to it. That's, That's huge. So let the magnitude of that settle in, right? And then you also cited statistics, 55% of married Christian men look at porn at least monthly, and one in 10 looks at porn at least daily. Yet only 7% of churches have a ministry program for those struggling with porn. Your ministry must really be a lifeline to a lot of families. What a resource you have given the Christian community. Men and women can know that they're not struggling alone. Here's another thing that I loved about this the way the book reads and the way that you attack these tough subjects, you never make the conversation awkward or weird, which is one of the reasons why I think the church stays away from such a heavy topic. My overall takeaway about your ministry, about this book, is that you have a real compassion for people who struggle with porn. So let's start with, with this. What are some misconceptions about porn? Um, one of them that I think about, and I heard this growing up, and is that all teen boys look at porn. It's part of growing up. They're just being curious. But what are some that you've heard?
0: Yeah. I'm really glad that you started this with the misconception, Sherry, because it ties in really nicely with your earlier point that we've got massive numbers of people, you know, using pornography, 79% of, of guys who attend evangelical church regularly using porn. And yet there's only 7% of churches with a recovery ministry. And I really don't believe that's because churches are unwilling to provide the services and provide the ministries. I think it's because people aren't coming forward. And that's because of all these misconceptions. We really don't appreciate the severity of the issue. We don't uh, appreciate that there is a way out, that a porn-free marriage is possible. So both those who are addicted, guys and girls who are addicted, are staying silent because of shame, because of hopelessness. They've tried many, many things, many things they've heard, you know, pray more, recite more scripture, all these things that don't work on their own. So they're staying silent, but also the wives, the partners, they're staying silent. So nobody is coming forward. So I think a great place to start, and it's where you decided to dive in, is looking at those misconceptions that we partners believe about what, you know, pornography usage and the, the most common one, and this is one that 76% of partners believe at some point that it's their fault. They think the reason that their guy is looking at pornography is because they don't measure up. They don't measure up physically. They don't measure up. They're not adventurous enough, Uh, but also in other ways, like I'm not a good enough mother. I'm not a good enough support. I don't keep the house clean. I don't bring enough money. I'm just failing. And this is the reason that my guy is acting out. If I was better, he would be able to withstand temptation better. But the problem with this belief is that it's completely missing the point because marital sex and watching pornography are not interchangeable. This is not apples and apples. You are trying to compete with a chemical experience because when we watch pornography, we get these happy chemicals released in our brain. You're not going to do that. There is something about pornography and the fact that you can watch multiple people engaging in whatever it is they're engaging. And every time you watch that, your brain responds as if you were having that encounter. And so you get these incredible high hits of accumulative dopamine and other chemicals. So having sex with your spouse, one person, one real person, is never, ever, ever going to produce those chemicals. And it's those chemicals that people get addicted to. So if you frame this in... You know, if your husband was doing cocaine, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go, oh, well, you know, maybe I can be a substitute, you know, right? Maybe I can be the meth you know, you'd understand that actually he's addicted to this substance and the same with gambling, which is, I would say the closest analogy, the closest or comparison, should I say, because it's a process addiction. You're not ingesting or in or injecting or smoking your drug. The drug is being produced in your brain when you engage in this behavior. So we never say to wives, do we, of gambling addicts, well, do you know what? If you just get a big old suitcase, fill it with cash and then give it to him, he's gonna stop because like he's got what he wanted. He he hit the jackpot. We we understand that that is ridiculous because it's the thrill. And it's the same with watching pornography. So this misconception that somehow if you were good enough and you could have sex enough and do everything that he wanted, you would be a good enough substitute is it, it's just not possible because it's the chemicals that are being produced in his head. And even if you looked like those women who are being exploited in pornography, even if you did the things that, that they're being coerced and forced and drugged into doing, um, your partner would still look at pornography it's not about a sexual encounter with a real person. It's about the thrill that you get from watching pornography. So that was a really long answer, but, but, but an important sort of foundational piece. This is not your fault. You cannot compete. And that's a good way to start because not
1: realizing that you are struggling against a chemical that's produced in the brain could lead you down a very long road of trying everything, including degrading yourself and putting yourself in positions or opportunities that are harmful to you, to your family, because
0: it seems like a bottomless chase to try and get your husband's attention. Well, that's, that's a really good point, Sherry, in that it is a bottomless chase because just like any other drug that you might be addicted to, you build up tolerance. So the pornography that you're watching one week may not do it for you in a couple of weeks, months, depending on how often you use it, time, you it escalates, the usage escalates because the brain, God is so wise in the way that he designed our brains to, to create equilibrium. So we're not designed for these crazy chemicals, the amount that pornography produces. So we have, he has these safety mechanisms. And one of the consequences of this safety mechanism is that it numbs the pleasure response. So you need more of your drug to get your hit. So you do that by doing more pornography or doing something a little bit stronger, a little bit darker, a little bit more taboo, and that gets worse and worse and worse. So it's just like you say, it's a bottomless pit. You can never compete. And even if you did, I, I say this to, you know, women who write to me and say, should I, you know, my husband is asking me to take pictures. Should I do it? And I'm going, are you prepared to keep, you know, well, apart from all the other things, I say don't do it. Are you prepared to keep upping the ante because this is never going to solve the problem? You know, and they go, oh, haven't thought of it like that. And who
1: would really do
0: you think you're helping or trying to find a remedy, trying to
1: find a way to help instead you're putting a band-aid on a waterfall. I hope that alone really lifts the load for some women who are struggling to figure out what's the best way. Why do you think the church is not doing a good job? You used an example where a pastor was trying to help, but he gave bad information. You termed it like he
0: wasn't trying to be bad. He was trying to help, but that didn't help because it was still bad information. And that's the problem. There's a lot of well-meaning, but completely misinformed, misguided advice. And it's so devastating because it takes enormous courage to reach out for help on this issue. It really does. And so when you finally do it and you reach out to that person, that authority figure, you know, in your religious community, which many, many women do, and then the advice you get is really damaging both to his addiction and to your heart and the relationship. So, I mean, that's the whole reason for our ministry. It's like, we want women to be able to discern healthy avenues of support and unhealthy avenues of support. Even if they're well-meaning, we want to equip you so that you go, "Hmm, I don't think that's right. So there's a lot of pastors out there who think that what a wife doesn't know doesn't hurt her. You know, they think, well, if she doesn't, if you don't keep telling her that you keep acting out, that's going to protect her heart, but you cannot build intimacy on a lie. And even if the, the woman does not know that what is going on. She knows something's going on because it's not just the behavior. It's the ramifications of the behavior, how it affects their personality. And also the fact that they're lying to you. It's the deception that absolutely destroys wives. And even when they get into recovery and the husband does a full disclosure, what what makes the difference between a couple that makes it and a couple that doesn't make it? is that is the guy able to walk in the light? Is he able to maintain that level of honesty, rigorous, 100% honesty, or is he for different reasons still lying? And sometimes they, you know, they gaslight us intentionally, you know, some are just abusive and horrible, but some they're doing it because the shame that they've slipped again is is so overwhelming that they're trying to protect their own safety. So like, I have to, I, I can't, I can't cope with her freaking out on me again or threatening to leave me or whatever it is. So I'm going to have to lie. It's really important that people are told to walk in the light, even if that's all pastors do just walk in the light folks. You know, there is help. There is hope. We have a powerful savior who can heal us from this, but we have to walk in the light. That's his commandment. When we walk in the light, then we have fellowship. We can't go to these accountability groups and not actually confess what we're really doing or try and rebuild trust with your spouse and continue to lie to her. It it just makes no sense. You're right. That does not build
1: intimacy at all. There's a break, a disconnect. And the fact that she does know something is wrong, whether she can put her finger on it or not, is still unsettling. He, He thinks he's protecting her because
0: he won't tell her the details, but yet she's still not protected because she feels a risk. And here's something fascinating that i learned not too long ago that totally blew my mind and it's all about why it's so traumatic why is the deception so traumatic or why is it so devastating when we when we find out that they're looking at something because people always go oh well it's not like he's cheating on you but yet to our brains to our hearts it's exactly the same and i was like what well, how is that you know are we just overreacting and it all comes back to attachment theory So when there's a rupture or a breakage, a deception in that relationship with your primary attachment figure, which is your spouse, your brain actually registers that threat, like that break, that rupture as a primal survival threat. So that's why our whole nervous system goes crazy. And we have all these physical symptoms just from the knowledge that our guys are looking at pornography. And I I think for, for many, many women, they'll find that really validating. Like I'm not going crazy. I'm not overreacting. My brain is freaking out because there is now this rupture in the relationship with my most important person, the person who makes me feel safe. I don't really trust him anymore. I'm not sure that I trust what happened in the past. And I don't know how to predict my future. I don't know how to keep myself safe because everything is all up in the air. But when we go to the church and they say, you know, what a wife doesn't know doesn't hurt her is completely negating and ignoring the fact that the wife is traumatized and needs healing as much as the addicted person.
1: On a level of intimacy that a husband and a wife share, that it still impacts a spouse like that. Like God created us so that the level of intimacy is neurological. Yeah, yeah,
0: yes, absolutely, absolutely. And the early couples' recovery work that is now being done based on this trauma model is absolutely fascinating. Her triggers trigger his triggers that trigger her triggers. And this is how couples get in these spirals where everybody is just destroyed. But the good side of that is now we understand it, you can actually intervene and be. The most important person for your spouse is healing. That doesn't mean you fix him. It means that with really good neuro-relationally trained therapists, you can build something quite incredible. And that was encouraging
1: in the book. Talk to us about the instrument that the wife is, that God has created her, what sort of authority she has in this position. Yeah, it,
0: uh, I think we do not fully grasp the... The genius of this whole design—we get little glimpses of it here and here and there. You know, gospel-centered sexuality being a, a mirror of the covenant love and, and all those things, but also to become one. Literally, we really do become two become one. And so, when someone is addicted, their brain has has been hijacked in many many ways, and they're—I mean, even to the extent that their prefrontal cortex is no longer functioning properly, they're no longer making good decisions. But in marriage, two become one. So, if your husband's brain is been hijacked, you're still thinking clearly. And God knew that he provided, you know, a help mate. It doesn't mean that you're there to serve him. It means that you're there to help him when he's drowning and nobody else knows. What has been proven again and again and again, sort of experientially is that when a wife puts her foot down and says enough, draws that firm line in the sand, then the guy gets into recovery. And it's, It's just what happens. So what is interesting is how the wife being the catalyst for the husband's change is totally scriptural. It says here in 1 Peter 3, verse one, in the same way, wives submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word. By the way, their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. So that on face value, before we dig into the Greek, looks like somehow we fix them by being pure. And then even in some translations that says respectful. So people have translated to say the way to win over your husband is to be perfect, is to be pure, is to be respectful, is to be in fear. I mean, that's what it even says in the King James, it says in, you know, in fear. And I was very confused by this because my experience of wives is it's like, no, it's when they put their foot down and they actually stand up and they go, I'm not accepting this demonic worship in my house anymore. It's destroying my heart and your brain and our family. Enough is enough. That's when things change. But it says in the scripture that we just need to be pure and respectful. I just was very, very confused and also a little bit panicky because I was trying to write a book and my, the scripture that I just found was like completely going against the point that I was trying to make. So I reached out to a professor friend of my husband's who studies Greek and said, without any context, I said, just can you look at that verse and what does it mean when it's talking about pure reverent lives? That word reverent can be interpreted as fear, respect, reverence, that word phobos. What does it mean? And what he came back with blew my mind. He said the word phobos, yes, it means in fear, but because of the way that Greek grammar works. Words that go together don't have to sit next to each other. So actually the fear belongs to the husband. It's when he observes your pure behavior, it puts him in fear. So he observes in fear your pure behavior. And that's like, ah, so you're saying that by following the world of God, which is saying flee sexual immorality, keep yourself pure, you can actually put the fear of God into your husband and bring him to repentance without a word, no more nagging, no more stupid arguments that go round and round, no more begging, no more pleading, no more threatening, no more ultimatums. I just have to stand firm and keep myself pure. I was like, that's it. That's exactly what I have seen with my own eyes in my own life, in the lives of you know the women I've worked with. It's wives obeying God. So when it says submit to your husband's Yes, you know, that is the the correct order of things. However, our primary submission is to God. And for many wives, it's just like, oh, thank goodness, because that scripture, unfortunately, has been used to smack us around the face with quite a lot. And actually, when you look at what the Greek actually says, it's the most beautiful verse because it takes all the pressure off about You have to convince him and say say the right things in the right way, and it's all down to you. You simply stand firm on the word of God and let God do the rest. Amen. It's a beautiful example
1: of... God working supernaturally, we put ourselves in obedience or align ourselves with his word and his value system, what he tells us to do. And then he moves in a supernatural way. I call it supernatural because it makes no sense to my mind that you don't say anything except model what God's telling you to model. And then your husband changes from an addiction because he has to even make a conscious decision with a brain that's really not
0: functioning in a whole manner. my husband, he now works as a certified sexual addiction therapist and someone once accused him, they said, you're leveraging my wife to get me into recovery. And he went, yep, I will use whatever you care about to pull you out of the swamp. Your brain is no longer working. Whether the wife leverages herself, there's a difference between trying to force your husband into recovery by threatening him, like, I'm going to divorce you if you do that. Mm. And just very calmly firmly, confidently saying, I know this is no good for us. And I love you too much. And I love us too much to let this take us down because, uh, I do believe that God can heal us, but we have to do what he says. And he's telling us to walk in the light. He will do the rest. I don't want to get too far
1: ahead of myself because the conversation is still early, but I don't want to miss that transparency when you get into the recovery mode, because that was pretty intense and yet it is so powerful. So we'll get to that. I just don't want to forget it. With regard to the woman being, you mentioned helpmate and and gave a great example on in this particular context, how she could be a helpmate, but can you maybe give some differentiation some context to what it looks like for her to be a, a source where she's you know, ushering her husband into recovery? What, what's her responsibility? What's
0: not her responsibility? Great question. I always say your job is not to fix him, but to get him who's somebody who can. And so I would say while his brain's not working, you have to do the legwork and the discernment and find someone somewhere that is going to be able to get him sober because unfortunately there are well-meaning people out there running small groups and stuff and the guys don't get sober. They just cycle round and round and round because they're not insistent on rigorous honesty. They're more sort of I'm being harsh here, but I really care about couples. They're more sympathy groups than recovery groups. It's more of a, they're there. I know it's hard. We all struggle. Oh, we've slipped again. And it's like, no, you can do better than that. Did you use the tools? Did you call anybody before? Did you call anybody afterwards? Tell us exactly what you did. That's hard. It's really hard. And and the burnout for leaders is is high because if you're really loving these guys, the, the people who are running these groups, it's really hard because you are forced to love them in, in a way that's uncomfortable. It's tough love. Um, so what, what is her role? Yes, to be able to get him into recovery. But also I would say her first job is to slap on her own oxygen mask and find help, find support, find resources so that she can stand firm because it's really, 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 really hard to do this on your own. You know, there is, there's so much pushback and you can't go to the places you normally go to. You can't go to your friends and family because a, you're scared about what they're going to think of your husband. You know, will they let him around the kids again. Does this mean he's a pedophile? All these untrue assumptions, or they'll be like, you know, it's your fault. They'll inadvertently blame and shame you. So I would always say, go to the avenues of support that, you know, you're going to get helpful, healthy advice first get strengthened, get supported, get educated. And then you can tell other people when you actually have the awareness to discern whether or not how good their support is. How would you find someone who's safe? What what are they looking for? Great question. Well, that's kind of what we do. That's our whole ministry is for women between discovery and recovery, because it's really hard because as you rightly said, nobody wants to talk about this. So how do you find someone to help you when nobody is talking about this and you're scared about their reaction when you do talk about it? So that's what we do. We provide educational resources to do that educational piece. Like, what am I dealing with? How do we get sober? What's going on in my body and my brain? Then we have a online support group which is like a baby step, because it's really hard to do that final leap into a recovery group, which is our goal to actually move you out of our baby group into a proper recovery group, because you're really freaked out. And you're like, what if I know, what if somebody knows me, or what if my story is too different than anybody else? And I still can't quite shake the feeling that this is my fault. And I can't bear the thought of anybody blaming me. So we are just there to love on you get you strong enough and confident enough to go to the resources. And then we also signpost you to the resources. So we've done all that legwork. We've vetted those who are trauma-informed, who are going to actually come alongside you and go, you're not crazy, you're not to blame. There is hope and help, but you need to grieve, you need to mourn. We need to get the ground safe before we can start building. Because without people who are informed and qualified, sometimes people jump straight into marriage. A therapy, And they start working on communication. it's like, okay, his brain's not working. You've been traumatized. He's still acting out and lying to you. You're still triggered all the time. Communication is not what you need right now. You need really, really strong scaffolding around both of you to get this ground safe and secure and get some sobriety under his belt and a bit of healing under her belt before we can start working on that communication piece reminds me
1: of when you're trying to discipline a child for what you think is a discipline issue, when in fact it's a trauma issue. A trauma issue will not respond to discipline tactics. And so when you're saying that you're looking for marriage counseling, but it's not going to work because you really need to be in trauma recovery.
0: Yeah. And there are some fantastic early recovery couples therapy where they do bring the couple together, but they are very specialized In dealing with couples in this particular situation, if you can both heal at the beginning with your spouse, it's amazing, but you need the right people to do it, not just your general marriage counselor.
1: Backing up just a little bit, when you said that she still feels like it's her fault and she doesn't want people to look at her wrong. Can you talk for just a moment about wifely duties? I think you go on to say it's not to make your husband feel better about his struggles, but to protect your heart and mind and body from being polluted.
0: That's her first place yeah. to re- to go. Well, we have so many interesting messages about you know marriage and Christian intimacy. I mean a lot, a lot of hurtful messages. And I'm just going to flag up a resource that everybody needs to go and read called The Great Sex Rescue by Sheila Ray Gregory. Fantastic. She did a massive survey of 20,000 women and she's got the data, like what do real women actually think about sex and what is the consequence, the repercussions of doing obligational sex for 20 years when you don't really want to? What does happen to your, to your heart, to your body? Because Unfortunately, there's still these teachings like, you know, you have to have sex with your husband every 72 hours, otherwise his head's going to explode. And it's not based on gospel-centered sexuality at all. It's based on quite, I would say, demeaning assumptions about guys, that they are just these carnal beasts who have these desires. and If they're not met, they're going to explode. And I think it's devaluing to them as well. You know, the goal is authentic, intimate emotional connectedness that then expresses itself physically that's what we're working towards not just her being a vessel to be objectified and used for the for the guy's gratification that's not what it's about it's really important that she gets that validation because women have been suffering alone with so many sexual issues because the other thing that we haven't talked about yet is Yes, some guys become hypersexual and coercive and manipulative and pressuring and all that stuff, but there are also the guys who go the other way and they become sexually avoidant and they haven't touched their wife for years. And it's really hard for a wife to not assume that it's because of the way she looks or because of her as a person, the reason she's being ignored, rejected persistently Because she knows that, or she may or may not know, that he's looking at all these other women. So obviously he's got a sex drive. It's just he doesn't want to share it with her. Not understanding that he's now conditioned his brain to only be aroused by this voyeuristic, isolated experience of watching multiple people as opposed to actually having sex with a real person. It's not her. It's not you. And if that is your situation, my heart goes out to you because it's absolutely devastating. But there is a lot of help out there and there's a lot of people who will understand you and minister to you and a lot of people who who are in the same boat who will get it and that's who you need to be around because you need to see it in other people like one of the best things of our group is that you can go on the little profile pics and you and you go these women are absolutely gorgeous what is wrong with the guys you know it really isn't how you look or what you do. It really isn't. And that's just validating. And, and so many women who've gone into physical recovery groups and they've sat in the group and looked around and went, this is not what I expected. You only have to look at our team page on our website and you're like, these women are gorgeous. Like, this is not how you look. Well, looking at statistics, so you just look around the church pew
1: right within the few seats where you're at and they look pretty normal and holding it all together. I can't help but think that if guys knew that it would remove their ability to enjoy an actual person, an actual woman, I have a hard time believing that they would continue.
0: I think it's because that's because you're assuming that it's still a conscious decision. Like I'm choosing this over this. And the thing is they're using pornography as a coping mechanism. It has become their emotional pacifier. and Many guys get hooked when they're little, when they're in their teens tweens it it isn't that they want sex it's that they want a hit of the chemicals that makes them feel better they have engraved these neural pathways in their head that connect pleasure feeling happy with pornography and they're so strong and so fast because the, the the chemicals that actually help you create those neural pathways extra ones are created when you watch pornography that's why it's so dangerous So whenever they had coped with any uncomfortable feeling or even a happy feeling, any sort of feeling, their brain just went, got to do porn, got to do porn. So it's not a, I'm choosing porn over my wife. And I really want that experience with my wife because that experience with your wife is not going to give you that hit that you need, that your body is craving almost like subconsciously. It's called stinking thinking. You don't listen to your brain. You do the actions that someone tells you to do. You just do them. Even if your brain is going, I don't want to, I don't want to. It's like, make the call, go to the group, you know, be hundred percent honest because your brain is literally not working properly. You've rewired yourself to be aroused by stuff that might even disturb you, that you don't even like, that horrifies you. But somehow now you are chemically dependent on watching these horrible things. So it really isn't a choice between sex with my wife or watching pornography. It's so much deeper and bigger than that.
1: These images are carving pathways in the brain and creating whole new mapping systems in the brain. So how is a wife supposed to set boundaries in order to keep herself pure while still remaining respectful to her husband's wishes?
0: That thing respectful, I I, I would like to just chuck that out because it comes from that one Peter three and it's not respect, it's fear and it's his fear. So this whole okay. emphasis on a wife has to be respectful. Yes, she has to be uh, it's not like his, his wishes are more important than her wishes. Male and female were, were created in, in God's image. You know, we are equal. We really are. I do believe we are meant to submit and there is a hierarchy. However, it doesn't mean that his needs are more important and, and need to be respected over your own feelings. I would say if you know that your husband's been looking at pornography and then he comes to you because basically he wants to use you, then you listen to your heart and you listen to, is that God honoring? Is that using the gift of sexuality as God designed and ordained, or is that enabling his sickness to continue and possibly get worse? So you don't have to have sex if you're feeling objectified and coerced and manipulated, pressured. And also you don't have to be neglected for years. You don't have to accept the fact that, you know, we as Christians are meant to suffer. It's like, no, we're meant to strive towards holiness. That's what we're striving towards. And, and sex is an important part of marriage, but it has to be healthy, God honoring gospel centered sexuality. So the boundaries that are put in place in the safety plan, which is a a document that is created with help with a therapist who is going to guide you or a coach you is not to control his behavior, it's to honor yourself. And if he acts out and he tells you that he acts out, then you might need time, physical amount of time on your own to process it. You might need space. You might need a period of celibacy. Whatever it is that you need to feel safe. And so that you you grow to listen to the Holy Spirit inside you, which is telling you, when you feel emotionally connected and when you are doing things for the wrong reasons and you actually listening to that helps him. So you not enabling him by having sex when you really don't want to is actually helping him because now you, there are physical consequences. There's a physical manifestation of what is going on internally for you. Does that make sense? It does. It does. There's a lot of freedom for women right now
1: because we get bad information and the people throw around scriptures and try to control that word submissive. I think it gets such a bad rap because it's associated with things like that. If you're a good godly wife, you'll submit to your husband without any regard to why, what was behind that. So I feel like you're giving women permission in a biblical standpoint perspective that they don't have to have sex. You can have some time away. Celibacy, there's some decisions that you get to make about your own body and your own personal and intimate relationship with God. And that being your first responsibility when your husband is not walking under the authority of God.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why support is so crucial because I'd love to say that guys respond well all the time, but they don't. There's a lot of pushback when you start putting your boundaries in place. There's a lot of pushback. It's crazy addict brain and you need you need to be so supported yeah. so that you can stand strong because he needs you to stand strong. And the guys in recovery, many, many times, they turn around and say and and say that their wife drawing that line in the sand was the most loving thing that she's ever done for them, even though it was the hardest thing that she's ever done. It would be clear if it was a child and it was drug addiction, it would be so clear. You'd go, okay, they're addicted. We need some boundaries. I'm not going to enable this. But when it becomes your spouse and it's to do with sex, it all becomes really blurry and confusing. Mm. So once you understand the brain chemistry and what's going on, it just helps you stand firm and go, nope, you really are an addict brain. We need to follow God's word and I'm going to honor my heart. And I don't believe that we are emotionally connected at this point. So therefore I'm not going to have sex with you right now. God's
1: word being that lighthouse in the midst of a storm when it's all falling down around you. You make a distinction between submission and obedience. You say they are two different things and that submission is a heart
0: attitude. Can you add something to that? I think it all comes down to reframing it in that our primary submission is to God. And that even though we are to follow our earthly authorities, there are many examples in scripture of people obeying God over their earthly authorities. Like they came to Peter and said, you've got to stop doing this and you've got to stop talking about this. And he's like, you know, I, I cannot stop talking about this. My primary obedience and submission is to God. So there are occasions when we are, when it is right to obey what God is saying. I mean, Gideon tearing down the Asherah pole you know, that didn't go well in the village. You know, he went at night. He was so scared about what they were going to do, but he did it because he was obeying God. And, you know, just like Esther, there's so many of those examples where people, they, they rise up and follow God, follow God against whatever. And I think that's, you know, a message for today, isn't it? As Christians, it's only going to get tougher to stand up for what we believe in. So I almost feel like God is creating this army of women for us to stand up and obey his word that will then enable the guys to get clean so they can stand up because we need our guys to be sober, to be strong, to be powerful in today's environment. We really do. But unfortunately, they're not doing that because they're drowning in pornography. It's like the devil's his best weapon. It's just taking the army of God out at the knees, which is why they need us to stand firm throw them a lifeline. I really do feel God is doing something. There are so many ministries, there's so many podcasts, there's so many resources, testimonies coming out at the moment. It's almost like God is going, I want to clean up my bride. I want to make her strong and ready for when I come back. When
1: I think about such an integral position for the wife and her family, it reminds me of why Satan went after the wife, went after Eve and not Adam. Because if you get the wife. You get the husband, you get the kids, you get the generations. And so he's, he comes after the wife for evil purposes, but God has the wife standing in this role, which would be why Satan would come after the wife because he understood that God put a woman in when it comes to the influence of her family. So God redeems. The Lord says
0: you have the authority to rebuild in your family. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, he's, he's coming for the women directly now as well. We are the fastest growing user group. If you look at the younger generations, massive numbers, over a third of porn users are now female. Really? That is shocking to me. I don't know why, but it's just shocking to me. Yeah. yeah. And and that is part of the problem. I, I totally get where you're coming from. And that used to be my attitude before I sort of looked into all the studies that show, no, our brains light up exactly the same way. You know, we are physiologically wired to respond to certain stimulus and they've done these functional MRI things where our brains light up in exactly the same way. We get addicted to the chemicals in exactly the same way. And now we have the global sex industry targeting our young women, Mm -hmm. saying that this is the way to be liberated, empowered, feminist, to actually embrace this demonic bondage. Uh, And it's so much harder for our young girls to come
1: forward. When I think about as far as porn use goes and all the the old school stuff I used to hear, y- you expect it of guys, but not girls. And so I guess if the guys are having a hard time coming forward and it's kind of, you know, demeaning as that comment
0: is, but women, I would imagine there's yeah. even less... Yeah. Because that's what, that's what people say. They don't go, if you say, if you talk about, you know, women who struggle with pornography, they don't go, how can we help them? They go, why, why would they want to watch that? And again, forgetting the point that this is about the happy chemicals that are produced in your brain. When you watch it, it's a coping mechanism, but the, the extra horrible thing about women watching pornography is that we actually interact with it differently. When guys watch pornography, they objectify the action when women watch it, females watch it, we project ourselves into the action. So now we're conditioning our brains to be aroused by being abused, by being Mm. degraded, by being humiliated. And women have come forward and said, I can't actually have sex with my loving husband unless he treats me badly. And it disgusts him and upsets him. And it does the same for me as well. However, my brain has now been rewired to need this framework in my head to need these uh, experience to be aroused. And that is devastating. It is, I need to point out in case there's anybody listening who is struggling themselves, it is totally reversible. Our brain is plastic and you can reverse this and you can reroute those pathways that got so hijacked. It is possible.
1: That is encouraging very much that even though it it is something that is chemical and pathways are are carved in the brain, it can be reversed. God has even provided a a method for that for us as well that regeneration, that rewriting,
0: that recoding, if you will. Would you like some more good news? Yes. Okay. So we tend to think of recovery from pornography as just taking the recovery out and then we get the same relationship. But actually, God is using this to actually force us to create the type of relationship that he designed us to have the way out of addiction out of this intimacy disorder this you know this unhealthy coping mechanism is to form a healthy coping mechanism and that is intimate relationships with other people especially your spouse so not only do you get sober from the pornography but now you have a a habit, a strength, an ability to be honest, to be authentic, to be vulnerable, to be emotional, to be connected in a way that you never were before because you never really shared who you were with your spouse because you were frightened. If they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. Both of you in recovery are forced to really share everything that you've done, everything that you've felt, everything you've experienced. And the other person, if the recovery is going well, accepts you knows you and on a level that was never there before the level of connectedness that you can get by throwing yourself into this process is what normally takes like 40 years because you get to know your spouse really quickly and really intentionally and really thoroughly because you have to be intentional about all the sharing and and, and all that stuff so actually you get an incredible marriage at the back end it really is the best worst thing that could happen to you so it's not just like my marriage is always going to suck it's like it's sucking now because potentially of the pornography it's not going to be the same minus the pornography it's going to force you to to be different to to create something new something incredible and that's what we're fighting for we're fighting for love we're not fighting against pornography we're fighting for love genuine
1: authentic love because that's One of the things that I was many things that I was impressed of with your book, but these testimonies of the couples who'd gone through such an intense recovery period where they were transparent and they were being authentic, was there gratitude about where they were now, the things they'd experienced getting to genuine intimacy that they had not known was possible, or def- definitely didn't experience that in their relationship before, because there were things that were hidden and secrets and lies. So I was very encouraged to see that thinking, wow, there's some beautiful intimacy in there below all of
0: the pain and suffering yeah. and
1: chemicals. And
0: It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, when I started my podcast, I wanted to do a panel I didn't, didn't just want it to be my story because not everybody relates to my story. You know, people have got different experiences. So I asked some people in our recovery community, would you be willing to share your story with the world? And they all said yes. And I was blown away. And it's exactly that. It's the gratitude, you know, uh, uh, that propels you to share and, and want others to experience what you have experienced and, and tell them that there is hope. It is possible. Hang in there. Do the really hard stuff. I'm finding in the ministries, the ministry is growing. Women really want to help other women come out of this the, the, the sort of silent shame and suffering. They really do. And just reach a hand out and go, you can do it. You can do it. And that for me has been the most incredible, unexpected blessing is the fellowship that you get with the other wives. It's beautiful. It really is. That's what I got out of the book. It is
1: definitely beautiful. Something to that'll bond you over and then great celebration. Beautiful and authentic relationship. And who isn't a fan of beautiful, authentic relationship? I think most everybody's looking for that actually.
0: Yeah. And it's not always sadness. I mean, you know, and the reason I started the, the panel podcast is that you can hear us joking and laughing. It's not always sitting around crying. Sometimes there are tears. Yeah. But the freedom that comes from like, I know what all about you, you know, all about me. It's just, you can just enjoy each other. Mm-hmm. And I wish church was like that. I wish everybody just like, spewed their junk out. So we could actually just get on with fellowship. And I do believe that's what it will be like in heaven. You know, there'll be no secrets. There'll be no shame. There'll be no hiding or facades. Everyone can just enjoy everybody else and incredible
1: freedom. No need for looking for coping mechanisms in heaven. Exactly. Let's see. I have a few more questions. We talked about the wife's part in taking a stance against pornography in her home. But can you give me one or two examples of how a wife can actively engage in battle
0: against porn in her marriage? The most important thing is to strengthen yourself. So it's very, very simple what you need to do. You need to just put that firm line in the sand and say, this is not happening in our household anymore. But in order to get there, you need to be educated and you need to be supported. If you've got a husband who is grateful that you've brought this up and he's like I can't believe that you're being so understanding and that you want to get help this is amazing let's book an appointment let's do this that's great doesn't always happen if your husband is pushing back it it feels counterintuitive to not actually push against him but I'm saying don't push against him go and put your own oxygen mask on so actually you're you're gonna go and get your own support and believe you me if he sees you getting strengthened and healthy and putting boundaries in it's going to rattle him You have nothing to lose. You have absolutely nothing to lose by strengthening yourself and getting supported and getting healing. Ideally, everybody gets into recovery at the same stage, but it doesn't always happen. Sometimes there's a recovery lag. You can't control whether or not he's going to be open to recovery or willing to get into recovery. You you can't do that. That's beyond your control. You can control whether you get into recovery and that will have an impact on him and you have nothing to lose. That's my best bit of advice instead of like saying, well, do this or do this because it really depends on his reaction. So the only thing I can say with absolute certain is you start getting educated, you start getting support, you start finding where the resources are and it will change the dynamic in the relationship. When it comes to the Christian marriage, where the
1: only option is to leave when a spouse has been unfaithful. And I still lean against the idea that if you're praying, who should you marry? Lord, is this my husband? Should I marry him? He's asked me to marry him. And the Lord says, no, we women are famous for working really hard to make God's no a yes. When in fact, it will never be a yes. It was a no. So my point being, is it your husband's pornography use? Is that considered unfaithful?
0: Well, as we've established, your brain is registering it as unfaithful and, and his brain is reacting physiologically. He is becoming aroused in the same way as if he's being unfaithful. Biologically, spiritually, he is being unfaithful. So people go, well, is it a grounds for divorce? It's never, it's never the pornography itself that people get divorced about or separated about. It's all the behaviors that accompany it. So it's the anger and the resentful and the criticalness and the distance and the coercion and the manipulation and the gaslighting and the deception and the... That's why people separate. It's not the pornography. It's the fact that the pornography is turning them into someone who is being abusive. And that's why people separate. So is he being abusive? Is it right to, to leave somebody when they're being abusive? That's a different question and, and not one that people I think can actually argue with today. If he was really lovely. if it had no impact. On your sex life. It had no impact on his behavior. He was totally available, totally connected. But that's impossible. It's impossible. He's been chemically altered. So uh, it, it just doesn't happen. You very rarely hear anybody going, everything was fine. Everything's fine. There was just this little niggle. I didn't like the idea of it. It just made me feel a bit yucky. It's like, oh my goodness, no, there's a whole host of horrible issues going on underneath. Mm.
1: Let's move into recovery because our time is running uh, low, but this is such a good conversation. I didn't realize the resources could be this rich and honest and transparent. So this is really nice to find this. And I'm excited to bring this to my listeners. With regard to recovery, you said there are four areas, disclosure, partner survey, safety plan, and celibacy. Could you touch on each one quickly? Well,
0: the reason I put those tools, it's not like there's a There's like a set path. You do this, 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 and this. These are tools that are used by trained therapists um, during recovery. So all these tools need to be done under the supervision. So it's not a case of picking up the book and then going and doing it with your husband. But this is to give you insight into what to expect. So that when your therapist says, okay, we're going to do an impact letter or we're going to do a full disclosure that you've actually read about it and gone, okay, I understand what this part of the process is, right? So I want you to put that out there first of all, because I have so many people writing me and saying, where are the questions? Where do I do this? And I go, I'm not going to give you the forms because I don't want you to do it on your own. I want you to go and seek help because if you don't do it with help, you're dealing with such painful, volatile issues this can go sideways really quickly and it's hard to get a full disclosure without help it's just really hard and you the last thing you want is a staggered disclosure where he tells you a bit one day and then tells you another bit and then another bit and then six months later you get another bit that is that's like death by a thousand knives that's just hideous so the tools that they will use yes there'll be this full disclosure which is the addict revealing the full extent of their behavior how much time they've spent, how much money they've spent, what type of stuff they've been into, interactions with people. It's factual. It's not, why did you do this? What were your thoughts? you know, Who have you fantasized? It's not, it's not details. It's an exercise in getting all the secrets out. And to also give the wife a, a reality check of this has been what you've been dealing with. This is what you've known on a gut level and this is filling in the pieces. So it's a really important stage for both of them because he needs to get it all out. The devil lives in the secrets. I really believe it. You know, we're in, in that dark space of shame and it's a, we need to get it all out. It's like a wound. You need to debride the wound. You need to get out all the gunk before it can heal. And she needs to hear it all as well because he needs to know that she's heard it all and she's still hanging in there. And it's a brutal period. It's a brutal period for both of them. But 96% of people who've been through this process say that was really worthwhile. It's the foundation. It's like ground zero for your marriage. It's like, this is the time when we actually find out what it's all about. And we can hopefully, we can build from this place.
1: So the purpose of the disclosure is really accountability and just revealing, bringing everything to the surface, into the light, so that the wife understands what the full yeah. scope
0: is yeah. yeah because she needs informed consent you cannot you cannot agree to be sexual with someone if you don't know what else they've been doing that's a basic right and also she needs to know whether whether she's safe has he been with other pe- people you know she she needs to know she needs to know the truth and before she can make any decisions going forward and she deserves that because even wives who are divorce now they go I never got that I never got that validation of what actually was happening and that's really hard it's really hard because you're still second guessing yourself did it really happen I don't know so it is a gift it's a gift from both parties a gift from the addict to actually say I'm trusting you with all this stuff and it's a gift from the wife to say I'm willing to hear all this stuff I did think it was rather brutal in the
1: sense that the level of transparency that it requires of the addict. And yet I do agree the wife needs to understand exactly the full scope of what you're dealing with here to move
0: on. And then there's the partner survey. Yeah. So this is what the wife's chance to be fully honest and reveal how this has affected her. And this is really hard because for many wives, it's the first time when they've actually connected all the separate bits of their pain and put it all in one place. And it can be very overwhelming because we have to cope with the fact we're living in crazy land and we have to cope with the deception and cope with the coercion and cope with the, whatever it is. So we do sort of like put things in boxes, but this is a place where it all comes together and you read it to your spouse, you know, with support there. And he hears the full magnitude of his behavior. So it's really important that she gets it all out and gets connected with the damage that's been done so that she can start to grieve, you know, grieve the, the loss of the marriage that she thought she had. And, and he gets to fully understand what a wife doesn't know doesn't hurt her is complete rubbish. You know, this has affected her so very deeply. So there's that stage. And then I talk about a period of celibacy in the book, which is an important stage for both of them to a for him to dry out Mm. and for for her to have a period where she can start to get in touch with how her own sexuality has been affected or how she might be using it maybe it's the only time she ever felt close to him because he was so distant so it's it's a good time a period of reflection that they can both start to look at how they've been using sex and also to find other ways of, of emotionally connecting. It forces them to, to, to try new things and learn new things. Any situation that
1: I've been through, that's been tough. There was always something in it for me. And you pointed to that here in this situation, that there's some healing for the wife as well, some baggage or anything that that either she's cultivated while in this, or she brought into the situation. Talk to me about sexual anorexia or intimacy disorders. I have never heard either one of those.
0: Yeah. Well, this can affect either partner. And just like it, sexual addiction, it's a coping mechanism. So it's like the, if you think of a spectrum, it's like the opposite end of the spectrum. So instead of compulsively thinking about sex and trying to act out, the other side is compulsively avoiding sex. So that's how how someone might stay safe. And either partner might bring it into the relationship or it can develop as part of the relationship. You know, if you're with someone who is sexually traumatizing you, it would make sense why your coping mechanism becomes to shut down and you need healing from that as well. But I don't want to label everyone who is having a traumatic reaction to living with a porn addict as sexually anorexic, because that's not true. You can, you can have a lot of the same symptoms and it, it comes entirely from what you've experienced in that relationship. So, which is why, why, you know, you really do need those, those professionals to help you untangle. And what's going on. And it, it is a process for both of them to get in touch with how they've been using sexuality and build something new and and share that.
1: I always end up in trouble between God and I when I resort to my own ways of self-protection and self-coping. So I can see where that's not any different here. We're running out of time and I don't want to keep you any longer. Is there something that I have not asked you about that
0: the listener must know today before we part? I would just say if you've got daughters you need to be having conversations with them, not just your boys. And there are fantastic resources out there and we've collated a load for you, but don't forget to equip your girls because they are being exposed to this. They are just as sensitive to, or susceptible, should I say, to becoming addicted. And it's going to be really hard for them to come forward. And there's a documentary three-part documentary from Fight the New Drug called Brain Heart World. And it's something you can watch with your kids, I think from like 12 upwards. And it's a really uplifting, hopeful series. And it explains to the kids that you have all these dreams and aspirations in your life and pornography is going to get in the way. And we want to equip you with the facts so that you can make an informed choice because kids are smart. They are. They are. They're taking in more than you think they are. They're
1: being subjected to more than you're aware of. So getting out ahead of that. I've also heard that when you talk to your children in an honest way, based on their age, as to how much information you give them, but you become the authority on that particular topic. So you want to be the first one to get to your children before somebody else does. Yeah, that's brilliant. Absolutely. We'll have all those resources for my listeners in the show notes. And also I want to connect them up with your ministry and the resources that you have available because it is, they're phenomenal. They really are. I'm so impressed. Rosie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for shining light in a dark corner where nobody really wants to poke around in and yet God's ready to heal and restore. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry.